Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. This is a show that explores individual and interpersonal dynamics, helping you become your best self while making the most of your business and the people in it. If you enjoy this episode, make sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Enjoy the show. In this episode, I'm joined by Elise Gelwicks, founder and CEO of Eleview Consulting. Elise has specialized in teaching interpersonal skills and emotional intelligence for over a decade. She founded her first company while in college to help students secure internships through networking. After working at Kimberly Clark and in management consulting, she founded Eleview Consulting. Eleview works with companies to give their teams the skills, tools, and resources to successfully navigate the delicate dynamics of the working world. Elise has been featured in the New York Times, Chicago Tribune, and ABC News for her work. She teaches several courses for LinkedIn Learning on networking and career acceleration. This was a great conversation with Elise. She is absolutely an expert when it comes to the the soft interpersonal skills that are needed in a workplace. We talk about those soft skills, what's missing. We go deep into several, including networking, communication, professional presence, how to send emails, how to speak, the tone of voice, posture, getting and taking feedback, time management. There there really is a lot in here. And each one has a lot of actionable takeaways for people, which I think will be really helpful. And the other thing I'll say before we get into the conversation is that while a lot of Elise's work focuses on new entrants into the workforce, my professional experience has shown me that a lot of these skills are still lacking at all levels. And even if we've spent some time there is, I think, going to be something in here for us that we can use to get better and be more effective and be happier in our careers. So I'm really excited to share this with you. Here is Elise Gelwicks. And we are live. Elise, welcome to the show. Very excited to have you on and talk about kind of all things networking and career development here with you today. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Want to jump in, I guess, just sort of level set. What is Eleview, your company, and what do you do? Eleview Consulting is a firm based in Chicago that works with companies to equip their young professionals to seamlessly integrate into the working world. We specialize in teaching the essential interpersonal skills needed to navigate delicate workplace dynamics. And they're the skills you don't learn in college, but are critical to success. And then we also work with leaders to make sure they're equipped to manage, lead, and inspire this new generation of talent. You talked about these being skills that are not taught in college, but that are very relevant to the workforce. I guess, how did this become an interest of yours? Or like, when did you notice that these were skills that people needed and that maybe you had the skill set to be able to teach them? I had the most intense helicopter parents growing up. So uh, when I was 
right around three years old, the house rule became that anytime the phone rang, my brother and I had to pick up the phone and we couldn't hand the phone off to my parents until we asked that person three questions about themselves. And it got to the point where as we got older, it was one of those questions had to be a follow-up question to show our active listening skills. So we, my brother and I, got very comfortable talking to adults, showing an interest in adults, responding to what they said to show that we were listening. And this skill, as much as I hated it at the time, really equipped me to be a professional. So my sophomore year of college, I went to Indiana University. I got over 10 internship offers all through networking. And my friends were not having that same success. So I started my first company in college to teach other students networking. And I would lead workshops on how do you establish rapport? How do you build relationships and trust? How do you present yourself in a way that makes people want to be around you? And I had a private client roster and I ran that company through college and then decided I wanted more of a traditional business experience and went to work for Kimberly Clark and then into management consulting. And in all of those roles, noticed a real gap amongst my peers in their ability to navigate workplace dynamics, to have a professional presence. So I founded Elevue Consulting to really address this gap and help companies equip their young professionals to start their careers with this knowledge that they really crave and they just don't know until you learn the hard way. And especially for professional services firms, you can't afford for your young professionals to learn the hard way if it's going to risk client relationships and engagements. So I have a big smile on my face because I have a two and a half year old who's very talkative. And the thought of putting him on the phone first and having him ask questions is quite hilarious. Though <laughs> I'm not going to tell you I'm not going to do that now that I know about that. But I, let's dive into that for a second. Like, what do you remember? I mean, this was a long time ago, but like, do you remember any of the questions that they would coach you on or like how they coached you to do that as a little kid? So it was less about what questions we asked at first. It was more just getting comfortable having a conversation with an adult. And as I got into high school and college, I felt very comfortable going up to the CEO of, of a big company. I wasn't intimidated at all because I had been talking to adults my entire life. Even though I was a teenager, I could totally handle it. So it really was just the practice of taking an interest in someone. And I think that is the key interpersonal skill and sign of emotional intelligence is having this innate curiosity in another person because everyone wants to feel understood, valued. When you take an interest in someone, you're saying, I'm curious about you. I care enough about you to learn about you. And that's a really good feeling you give them. And most people just don't take the time to do that. As you grew up, were there other lessons that they taught you along these same lines? Like, how did this practice evolve in their teachings? You know, uh, being such helicopter parents, my parents are both attorneys and they both started their own practices. So they were really entrepreneurs at their heart. And they would encourage us to come up with business ideas and just go for it. So anytime we had an idea about anything, whether it was, I want to be a fashion designer 
that was my brother, who's now a celebrity fashion stylist in New York City. It would be, okay, draw out some designs. Let's connect you to anyone we know in New York. You send it out. You send out your book proposals at age eight to publishing houses. Why not give it a shot? So they really instilled in us this, just go for it. Nothing is holding you back. That was a really big focus in our house. And then the other key element of adult skills was related to finances. My parents were obsessed with teaching us the power of savings and compound interest. My dad would tuck us into bed at night and say, go to sleep and you're going to make so much money while you sleep. And it was this thought of (laughs) you make money while you sleep if your money's in the bank and accruing interest. And that actually did relate to me starting my business because I was able to take a risk and quit my corporate job because I had been saving since the age of having lemonade stands. And that was very powerful. Money is power in a way and gives you such freedom to take a risk like starting a a business. I love your parents already. (laughs) I feel like we need to get together at some point and I would love to meet your parents. Feel like I could I could learn a lot from them as well. So one of the things that that makes me think about is a conversation that I had with another guest on here, Scott Mosley or Scott Morley. Sorry, Scott, who was a West Point graduate, went on to become a special forces officer and served in the military for twenty years. Now teach teaches leadership, and we were talking about leadership, and we were talking about his time at West Point, and we were talking about how from the your very first day you are being exposed to leadership and you are being asked to lead in some way. And so your second year, you're in charge of one person. And then your third year, you're in charge of a small group of people. And your fourth year, you're in charge of a a larger group. And we just talked about reps, like how you come out of the military academy, you come out of West Point, and then you come out of any amount of military service. And you've had so many leadership reps. That's why so many great leaders in our country's history went to West Point. And I think about what you do and about how in college you were getting all of these internships and opportunities. And it's not, I might argue here, you can tell me if I'm wrong, that it's not because it's just like you were born innately that way. It's because from, like you said, age three, you were getting your reps in, like you were going to the gym and you were building that muscle and that skill set. And I think people often think that we're born one way or another and you're personable or you're not. I think what goes missing is the amount of reps that go in to somebody being a certain way that looks natural. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. It really comes down to discipline. And I think that's a key learning or or foundation of West Point as well is you have to just keep putting yourself in these uncomfortable situations. And I think that is directly correlated to what I teach with networking skills so many professionals, no matter how many years of experience they have, whether it's one year out of college or 20 years out of college, will say, you know, I just, I feel so uncomfortable networking. I hate reaching out to people. I hate making small talk. We've actually conducted studies and found that the number one reason people do not network is because they feel awkward having the conversation which I found really surprising because I assumed it was lack of time. Everyone is so, quote, busy. And it's not that. They know that they need to prioritize it. They just feel uncomfortable. And I always tell them networking is a numbers game. 
You have to keep doing it. The more you do it, the more comfortable it will be. You'll get in the swing of, okay, this is how I establish rapport. These are my talk tracks. This is how I've found people are really responsive to what I'm asking. And it's also about delayed gratification. I think that's a real skill is to not be so obsessed with instant gratification, especially in our technology focused world where we're so used to getting everything immediately. These skills and values take a lot of time to develop. So you have to be patient and disciplined and keep doing it. And it will pay off tenfold if you can have that mindset. So at some point, I want to go back and sort of talk about all the soft skills that are maybe underdeveloped in the workplace. But we've already sort of jumped into the networking pool. So let's swim around there for a little bit. Why is networking so important in your mind? Networking is absolutely critical for a couple of reasons. You know, if you think about any stage you're at in your career, if it's I'm looking for a new job, I'm not happy where I'm at, or I'm a recent grad trying to find my first job, your network is how you can easily land a job by tapping into the people who know you, who like you, who trust you. They are your advocates and they will connect you to jobs that might not even be posted. They will pass your resume along. They will give you the inside scoop on what the job is really like so that you are able to nail the interview. If you think about, okay, I am looking to get promoted within my organization. If you have a network of mentors and advisors who can help guide you through the career ladder, that's essential. If you are in a current industry and you want to change industries, your network is who you go to. So I think of your network as your army of advocates. And I also think it's important to have a personal board of directors. So every company has a board of directors or every large company does. And the board, each person is selected for a specific reason. They bring a specific skill set or experience. And I think that's the same for your personal board of directors. You need someone who is going to be your mentor. You can go to with those embarrassing, awkward questions. You need someone who is your sponsor, who's advocating for you behind closed doors. I think the difference between a mentor and a sponsor is a mentor is someone you go to lunch with. A sponsor is someone who talks about you at lunch. In addition to those roles, you need peers who are in the trenches with you doing similar work. So when you fill your board of directors, you are equipped for all that life is going to throw at you. And I think networking is similar to putting money in the bank. You're putting money in the bank before you need it. Same goes for networking. You don't start networking when you need something of someone because then no one's going to want to help you. So it takes this investment in long-term perspective. So how do you define networking? Networking is the establishment of relationships or acquaintances over time through regular and active communication for mutual benefit. It's about answering the question, how can I add value to you and not what can I get from you? And how do you define value then? Value can be, it's subjective. It can be someone, you know, I think about people who are so much more established in their careers who I look up to and how do I add value to them? Sometimes it's making an introduction 
to someone in my network who I think they would get a lot out of a conversation with. Sometimes it's just bringing enthusiasm to the conversation. I remember when I was 18 and reached out to the CEO of a global textile company, and he spent two hours talking with me at age 18. And when I left that meeting, I was thanking him profusely for his advice. And he said, no, thank you. Your enthusiasm is contagious. This is exactly what I needed today. And that was such a light bulb moment where so many people appreciate just this fresh energy, someone who's very genuinely enthusiastic coming in. It then makes them feel better about their work. Yeah, I love that. And I was sort of setting you up there because I have a similar belief, which is value is anything that the other person finds valuable. That's what it is. And I think I remember because I've, I've been doing sales my whole career. And so networking has always been something like, oh, you got to go out and you got to network and you got to add value to other people. And I remember thinking for a few years, you know, I don't really have anything to add. Like I'm just, I'm looking for connections. I'm looking for business opportunities. I don't know what I can add to these people. I don't have a network. I don't have contacts. And so therefore I can't make introductions that are going to add business value to them. And I was thinking of value the same way that I was for them, the same way I was thinking value for myself. And what I found over the years is like, I just, I happen to be a reader and I just like a lot of different broad topics. And so I can get into a lot of conversations and know something or have read something about the conversation. I'm not an expert, but I can add something to a lot of conversation. And what I found after a while was we, I'd be in a conversation and I'd just be like, oh yeah, well, have you read this book? And he'd be like, no. And I would tell him about it and he'd be like, oh, that sounds really interesting. That's exactly what I'm looking for. So I'd send him the book and like that added a ton of value. And I found that then they were like very interested in continuing to be around me and helping me how they could help me and all the things that you talk about the value of a network. And it just opened my eyes that there's a lot more to value than just the one thing that you're trying to get out of the interaction, you know, or the thing that you would find most valuable. It's whatever is going to be valuable to that person. Yes. And sometimes I think it's enough to just have the gesture of attempting to add value. And that is enough. Yeah. That Great is point. so appreciated by people because not many people do that. Human human beings are pretty selfish by nature. And the fact that you're thinking about how can I do something for you? is really powerful. And just a classic example of when I was younger, all the time I would be thinking about, I don't know what I could ever do to add value to this person. And so frequently they would say something about their children and say, you know, my kid's looking at colleges, doesn't know if she wants to go to Indiana or Ohio State. And I would say, oh, well, I went to Indiana. I'd be happy to talk with her and share more about my experience or connect her to a current student. And was I doing something huge for this CEO of making them a million dollars? No. But what was important to them is their kid picking the right college. And so... Well, and that probably was huge to yes, them. Yes, exactly. You know, that was the big personal issue that they were exactly. dealing with. Exactly. So it's, if you have a curiosity and take an interest in someone, you'll uncover ways you can add value. Yeah. And I think if you are enthusiastic about the things that you are enthusiastic about, like if you just follow... You know, I think the like, oh, follow your passion thing is a little overplayed. Mike Rowe has a great thing about how that's absurd when it comes to business. But I do think if you follow your passions in life, even outside of work, it just makes you a richer person and you wind up being able to make all kinds of different connections. 
There's a great book called The Medici Effect. Mm. Have you ever heard of that? Mentioned I read no. a lot of books. But um, so it talks about how there was in Renaissance Italy, there was this explosion of creativity, of business, of innovation. And why was that? And, and the book supposes that it was because all the experts in all the different domains at the time all converged into Florence under the Medici's. They were all brought in and they were all they all shared their ideas and it just created this explosion of everything because it was not it was a painter who got an idea from maybe a doctor at the time that you would never think that those two things overlapped. And there are a bunch of great stories in the book about how people took something from one discipline and applied it to another. And I think that's true with networking too. You know, like you never know where you're going to be able to add value by connecting two dots that somebody else find might find totally separate. Absolutely. And that's why it's so important to have a diversified network is so you can essentially be the hub of the wheel and be the connector, be the person who knows a lot of people and can make interesting introductions. Everyone loves to be introduced to someone because it shows I, the introducer, was thinking of you. Everyone wants to be thought of. Everyone wants to meet new people. And so it's just the ultimate way to add value. I'll tell you that since COVID is somewhat at bay and we can get away with eating outdoors in Chicago during the summer months, I'll reach out to women who I really look up to and I have just gotten so much value and advice from. And I'll reach out to two of them who may or may not know each other and say, I want to take you to lunch. And they are always so excited to go to lunch because not only do I get a lot out of it, but they are meeting with me and another woman who is a peer to them. And it's just this great way for me to add value, the gesture of saying, I want to treat you to lunch. I want to introduce you to so-and-so who I think you're really going to like. It's so well-received and it, it just takes time and intention. And I think that's really the secret to being a powerful networker and relationship builder is having that time and intention and being really methodical about it where research shows that in order to maintain a professional relationship, you need three touch points per year. So if you think about all the people you interact with, O'Brien, through your podcast, through work, through your personal or social lives, hundreds of people, if you want to maintain those relationships, you can't go a year or two without talking to them and then call them up out of the blue and ask for something. You have to have that regular active communication, which is why I really suggest and promote keeping track of who you talk to, what you talk about, setting proactive follow-up dates for yourself so that you don't lose that momentum and trust that you had built. That's great. I hadn't heard that before, but I'm going to apply that to what I do in my own network. And I want to hit, I know we're sort of going deep down this specific rabbit hole, but I want to hit one more piece here, which is I love what you said about helping the CEO's kid figure out you know what college they might want to go to. Because another barrier that we put up in our heads that I put up in my head for a long time was that this has to, it all has to be work-related. And so can you talk to that just a little bit and the value of taking these same lessons and applying them to your personal life? Yeah. So I have to admit that I am the world's biggest introvert. I am drained by interacting with human beings. And it's 
very bizarre to me that I became really a public speaker. All I do is lead workshops at companies all day. And I find going to conferences or networking events completely exhausting. And I found that it's not as painful if I can find something that I genuinely find interesting about another person. And everyone is interesting if you make them interesting. So it's about uncovering what they want to talk about and you're really interested in hearing about. And sometimes that's their golden retriever. I'm a big dog lover. If I learn that they have a dog and there's nothing else about them that I find interesting, we'll talk about that. And it's figuring out who is this person as a human being. Work is not their whole life. And so as I've said, everyone wants to feel understood. And you really can't understand someone unless you know about their family, about their interests, about what they do outside of work. And so learning about all these other elements of a human being is what creates a strong relationship. And I think when you view networking as really trying to become friends with someone almost, you're taking an interest in all parts of their lives, it really deepens the trust and the understanding between two people. So I really, especially if someone has kids, everyone loves to talk about their kids. I keep track of their kids' names, what their kids are interested in. I'll send them an article and say, you know, I thought Johnny would find this of interest. I know he's only seven, so he probably doesn't read the New York Times, but wanted to pass it along just in case. So that type of understanding of someone, it it just makes the other person feel like, okay, I really know Elise and she really understands me. That is very impactful. How do you keep track of all that? (laughs) I teach in my workshops, keeping really an Excel spreadsheet, the people you come across with, the context for how and when you met them, because it's very easy to forget. The date that you last spoke with them, proactively setting a follow-up date, typically four months out, given you need three touch points a year, and then keeping notes on the conversation. What trips do they have coming up? What's going on with them at work? So that when you see them again, you can follow up. And that, I can't even tell you how powerful that is to say, you know, I was thinking about you. I remember you saying you were having a hard time with your manager. Did that get resolved? Every time people say, wow, you have an incredible memory. I can't believe you remembered I told you that. And I'm thinking to myself, I do not have an incredible memory. I just kept notes and reviewed the notes before I spoke with you. But people love that. And it's so simple to just take the time and really, again, the intention to do that. There's also tools like Nimble, HubSpot, Asana. There's a lot of software out there. I'm not very tech savvy personally that allow you to keep track of your network or any CRM of sorts. I'm pretty old school and I recommend Excel, but uh, you can use whatever works for you. It's just it's figuring out what your formula is and sticking to it. Let me play devil's advocate for a second because I could see here's somebody listening to that and being like, oh, well, you're being manipulative. Oh, you know, Mm. somebody's like, oh, you have such a good memory. And you're like, well, not really. I just recorded it down. And somebody goes, oh, so you're just like, you're just setting me up. How do you (laughs) respond to that? Buttering them up a bit. Yeah. Well, one, I don't usually say, oh, I wrote it down and I reviewed my notes. I just kind of smile and laugh and we go on with the conversation. But it's not 
I really, I don't view it as manipulative because one, I genuinely am interested in and how can I possibly keep track of what's going on with the hundreds of people I interact with in a given month, especially if I'm speaking in a given day, I might present to a thousand people and have many of those people reaching out to me one-on-one. So there's too many names, too many people in my brain, and I have to keep track of it somehow. So because I come at it from a very genuine place of really tell me, how is it going with your manager? I know that was a real issue for you. I don't think it's ever viewed as manipulative. Even if I would have told them, you know, I, I was reviewing our notes and I had that written down. I can't imagine that being perceived in that way if you come across, if you're doing it in that type of way. And again, I'm not always asking for something from another person. So it, it's not like I'm trying to get something out of them in the moment. Yeah. Well, and I've gotten similar feedback myself, which is I was really bad in my early career at being thoughtful about what would add value to other people. So I created a spreadsheet for myself and I wrote down all the people and what they were looking for and conversations that we had. And then I would go back and I would say, you know, something would come across my desk, like some job opportunity. And I'd be like, oh, I know I just talked to three people who are looking for jobs. Well, sure enough, I have a spreadsheet of who's looking for jobs and what jobs I know are open. And I could email those people and say, hey, here's a job description. They'd be like, oh my God, thank you for thinking of me. This is great. And again, I'm not trying to manipulate them. Like, I genuinely want to help those people solve that problem, but I'm not going to be able to do it on my own because my brain doesn't work that way. So I've built a tool to help me do it. And then people are like, man, you're just so innately good at this. And I'll be like, no, no, I'm not. But it is important. And so I've created ways to do it purposefully. And I think to anyone who sees that and is be like, oh, well, that's too contrived. Like, I don't think it is. I think if you just set the intention for the way you want to behave and then you say, okay, well, am I naturally going to behave that way? No, I need some help. Okay, well, there's nothing wrong with having a tool to help you. Absolutely. Yes. Couldn't yeah. agree more. Thank you for indulging me on that one. I was going to ask you a question about personal branding, but I think I know the answer to this question too. But how do you advise people to think about their personal brand? And is it something that they need to be building on purpose? Or is it something that just happens authentically by living the way that you're talking about living? Mm, I think it's quite intentional. So I think personal brand is synonymous with your reputation. And that is how do people perceive you? How do they talk about you when you're not in the room? And our number one most popular workshop at Elevue is called Build Your Reputation. And it's an entire workshop on how do you intentionally craft how you're perceived by others. And an exercise we do in that workshop is have participants think about three years from now. What do I want to be doing? What do I want to be known for? What do I want to be talking about? And you kind of bullet point that out. And then you come up with three adjectives to describe that person you just wrote about. For each adjective, by the end of the workshop, they'll have come up with one micro action they can start taking immediately to exhibit that quality. And our reputations and personal brands, they're built slowly over time through thousands of micro actions. And we're typically not aware that we're building it. We're in autopilot most of the time. And the trouble is that our personal brands can be tainted, if not destroyed, by a lapse of judgment, by not being intentional or self-aware. And so 
you have to be so careful with how you present yourself because it is very fragile. So I think it's incredibly important to be intentional with the actions that you take and and have this North Star of what you are aiming for so that you can get there. Because if you don't know what you're aiming for, you're not going to get there. It's it's your compass. Yeah. And to your point, it's where they want to go, right? Like it has to be authentic. Yeah. That's the only way you'll have the motivation to get there and really the ability to do so. Like, do you have to help guide people to be authentic? Which I know is a weird question, but like, do you have to help people sort of get out of their own way from what they think they should be to what they really want to be? That's an interesting question. I think people, when you give them the time to reflect, they know what they want. It's usually more of a question of how do I get there? And so that's what I try to relay to them is that you can get there. And it actually usually doesn't take a Herculean effort to do so. It's small shifts in your behavior. So I'll tell you that the number one adjective that people use that they say they want to be described as in this Build Your Reputation workshop, and I've done this with thousands of people, hands down, the number one adjective that people self-select is reliable, which I find really interesting. They use that exact word, reliable. And sometimes I'll hear the word dependable. And I find it so interesting that so many people want to be viewed that way, especially in a professional capacity. And then the number one pain point I hear from executives on especially working with young professionals is that they're not responsive. And you can't be (laughs) reliable and not responsive. So there's a real breakdown here. Why is this happening? And really how you can be more responsive in a way that is meaningful to leaders is to do micro actions such as confirming receipt of an email. If they ask you to look into something and you just reply, yes, I will have that to you by 3 p.m. today. That's it. It's not some huge thing, but it makes a difference. And most times people just don't think to do that or they don't take the five seconds to do that. So it's about helping them figure out How can I do these little things that really add up to make a big, big difference? So we've gone deep into networking, and I think this is a great conversation. My last question for networking is, what are the first baby steps that you suggest for people? Like for those people who are like, just like you and are introverted, but haven't flexed this muscle in a long time, where do you suggest people start in getting on this path? If you're introverted, it's much easier to network through one-on-one conversations, at least for me personally. I find group conversations difficult to navigate. So I would recommend thinking about someone who you respect, admire, you've heard of around the office, but you don't really have a relationship with, and simply reaching out to them and saying, you know, I've heard your name or I know you also know Susie down the hall. I want to learn more about how you became director. I'm currently a business analyst, and it's my understanding that you also were a business analyst at some point. I want to understand how you got to director and what the critical skills are that you see in helping you get to that point. That simple ask, it's 20 minutes of someone's time. Everyone loves to talk about themselves. So you're giving them an opportunity to do so. 
And it's a baby step to start getting in those reps of having these conversations. And once you do that, you realize that they are quite comfortable and and energizing. They can be if you handle them right by preparing thoughtful questions to ask and doing your research on them before the conversation so that you can get what you're looking for, get the advice or, or have a goal in mind for the conversation. And that will help guide it and direct it and give it meaning and purpose. So let's elevate sort of back up above networking for a second and talk about the other soft skills that you see lacking in the workplace. What's sort of the full range of skills that you see as being underdeveloped? Communication would be the umbrella term I would use. In terms of communication, we see a lot of just unawareness of proper email etiquette. I know that sounds so basic, but writing an email that is skimmable, concise, synthesize the information, has a clear subject line, is sent well in advance of when the other person needs it. They should be able to skim your email and in three seconds, get the gist of what you need from them or what you're talking about. Also within communication, it's professional presence, your body language, your tone of voice, not using excessive filler words like, like, um, uh, so, you know, the average person uses five filler words per minute, one every 12 seconds. The optimal rate is once a minute. So we dramatically overall stereotyping here, but we need to reduce our filler words because it just diminishes our credibility with other people. Also in terms of communication, our critical conversations How do you ask for feedback without driving your manager crazy and constantly using the phrase, do you have any feedback for me? How do you receive feedback that you might really disagree with or find hurtful? How do you handle it in a productive, professional way? Other skills include time management, eliminating or reducing distraction, being more efficient, taking initiative, being thorough and detail-oriented, I would say the emerging trend I'm seeing, particularly with our law firm clients, we do a lot of work with Amlaw 200 firms, working with their junior associates. It's how to address comments or actions that you find offensive or insensitive. How do you thoughtfully respond rather than knee-jerk react in the moment and maintain a professional demeanor? So I would say that encompasses primarily the skills, interpersonal skills that we see most lacking. That's great. And I love that last one talking about not just having a knee-jerk reaction, but actually taking some time to sit with it. Write the email when you're mad, come back to it when you're not mad. Most likely you'll throw it away and rewrite it again. You know, it's just like inevitably happens. Get it out. That's fine. Then delete it and then write the email (laughs) you actually want to send. So there's a, there's a lot there that needs to be developed, apparently, that our education system is not addressing. You hit on some of the specifics of email etiquette there. So I think that's a great one. You hit them quickly. But if somebody wants to go back and just understand how to write a clear, concise email and and what an email should be, that's great. Should not be long paragraphs. It also shouldn't be the one I've noticed like on LinkedIn is it seems like everybody puts every sentence as its own paragraph, which is fine if it's like, four or five sentences long, but I've seen people post like 30 sentences. Each one's its own line. And I'm like, good dear Lord, this is hard to read. (laughs) So there's a balance with everything here, people. Question about filler words. How do people go about eliminating filler words from their speech? 
that's the first question. Then I have a follow-up. But how do you suggest people go about eliminating those words from their speech? First step is being aware of what your go-to filler word is. And you can pretty easily get the answer to that by turning to the person who sits next to you or turning to your spouse or roommate and asking them. (laughs) They'll probably be able to tell you within a millisecond of what your filler word is. I also think once you hear even us talking about filler words, everyone becomes so much more self-aware. So in my workshops... One, I hate talking about this subject because now everyone becomes hyper aware of my filler words, but they also become hyper aware of their own filler words. And when we do an exercise that I like to call the hot seat, where I ask someone a question, ask them to unmute in a workshop or stand up if we're live, I'll ask them a question such as, walk us through your typical Saturday. And everyone else in the room has this checklist and they're keeping track of their filler words of their tone of voice and body language. And the speaker is so aware of their filler words. And usually afterwards, they say, wow, I almost said like about 50 times in that two-minute presentation. So that awareness is key. If you're practicing for a presentation you're giving or if you're going to speak up in a meeting and want to get your three points nailed down, I recommend practicing. And each time you use a filler word as you're practicing, repeat it three times. So I might say to myself as I'm practicing, I'm really looking forward to this like, 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 like. I'm really looking forward to this podcast that I'm doing today. And that awareness by repeating it three times reduces the likelihood that you're going to say that filler word in the real deal. Interesting. That's great technique. You did say though, that the optimal rate is one time per minute. Shouldn't the optimal rate be zero? I think that's at times unrealistic. And I do think there's benefit in pausing to think about what you're about to say. So in some instances, a filler word is better than saying something that's incoherent or unrelated to what you want to say. Ideally, sure, if you can reduce your filler words wonderful. If you think about if you're an audible person listening to books, how annoying it would be if they were using filler words as they were reading the book to you. But in the course of normal conversation, if you can do one per minute, which is actually quite hard to do if you're... I'm sure if we recorded this podcast and listened to it and tracked our filler words, I'd be curious actually to see how many we're both using. But You're crushing it, by the way. <laughs> I've been paying attention for the last couple of minutes and you are. I think you're clean. Gosh, well, it's taken a lot of practice. So yeah, the the more you can just reduce, that's why I focus on reducing them, not completely eliminating them. Yeah. One of mine, and I'm guilty of this, and this might be like shattering the glass for people who are listening to this or have listened to this podcast, but I start a lot of questions with so. Mm. It's my lead-in word and I try to kick it, but it just doesn't happen all the time. (laughs) So... (laughs) I want to talk about professional presence as well. And, and you talked about speech as a part of that, but what are the other elements of professional presence? Active listening is huge. This is a real gap I see among a lot of professionals across all levels of experience. So when someone is talking to you, make eye contact. If you are darting your eyes around the room, if you're distracted by someone walking by, if you're glancing down at your phone every time it lights up or your Apple Watch when a text comes through, 
you seem distracted and the other person is not going to feel like you are giving them your full attention. It's disrespectful. Another element, and this is true over Zoom, I should say, for whatever reason, in these video meetings, we're all distracted by our own video and we could stare at ourselves all day long. But the equivalent of eye contact is boring your eyes into the camera and saying, I am fully present with you. I'm not looking at my email. I'm not looking at my phone. I'm here. I'm interested. I'm engaged. Simple body language like smiling, tilting your head to show, I'm curious about what you're saying, nodding your head. A fun fact is if you nod your head three times, the other person on average will speak for three to four times longer. You're giving them the cue of, please keep talking. I am fascinated by you. So the more you can do that, the more you're going to seem present, engaged, curious. And those are all elements of professionalism. I think body language, being aware of how you're positioning your body, not slumping in your chair and looking bored out of your mind in a meeting. Not great. Instead, sit upright. You're making eye contact. You are not crossing your arms in a defensive way. You're not massaging your neck, uh, which is a sign of I'm stressed. You're not clasping your hands, which is a sign of I'm giving myself a hug because I feel uncomfortable. There's a lot of science that goes into professional presence as it relates to your body language and tone of voice. You're just leading me into the next one because I was going to ask about tone of voice and also pitch and energy of voice. Can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah. So someone decides if you are trustworthy. They make the initial call on your trustworthiness within half a second of hearing your voice. You've barely squeaked out a hello and their brain has already come to that conclusion, whether it's right or wrong. So being aware of how you enter a meeting, how you pick up the phone and do it in a confident, energized way where you don't seem bored or distracted or angry, that's going to help your professional presence. There's this great video of Margaret Thatcher where at the start of her political career, she was told that she comes across as weak, not very confident in herself. And you can't have that as a leader of a... (laughs) a major player in the global economy. And she hired a vocal coach to change her tone of voice. And if you just Google Margaret Thatcher tone of voice, you'll get this 30-second video. The first 15 seconds are pre-vocal coach. The second 15 seconds are post-vocal coach. And it is a night and day difference. I've watched that video hundreds of times. I use it in our workshops. And I couldn't tell you what words come out of her mouth because it doesn't matter. It's the tone of voice that changes everything. So being aware of that, I, you know, I sometimes hear from people, well, you're telling women they need to be masculine in their tone of voice. And that's not it at all. It's about being confident and being the confident version of yourself, being intentional with your tone of voice. It makes such a difference. And You want to express that you are enthusiastic about what you're talking about. That keeps people interested in what you're saying. So you can do that through tone of voice. That's fascinating. We'll put everything we've talked about, including that video, we'll put in the show notes at peoplebusinesspodcast.com. Perfect. That's fascinating to me that we make that decision that fast. And what I was thinking, the image I had in my head as you were talking is teaching somebody to 
give a handshake the right way. And it's the same thing. I can't tell you how many people I've judged because of their handshake. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to throw my wife under the bus a little bit. But when we were first dating, I was like, you've got to fix your handshake. (laughs) And she was like, why? And I was like, you've got to fix it. And she's, she is a, a professional ballet dancer. And so she grew up in the arts and you just see a lot of people in that world who maybe don't have the strongest handshake. And it's it's kind of like an art an art thing I've I've noticed spending a lot of time in that community. No offense to artists, love you all. But I said to her, You've you've got to fix that handshake. And, and we actually like worked on it. Sorry, honey. <laughs> can can like this is why I like your parents so much. I just can't help myself. But it's essentially the same thing that you're talking about, right? Like, what do you want in a handshake? You want something that's firm and confident. It doesn't need to be masculine, mm-hmm. right? You don't need to squeeze the hell out of somebody's hand. It doesn't need to be overconfident or forced in some way, but you just want to know like, Hey, I'm confident in who I am and it's great to meet yeah. you. I'm here showing up on purpose. And it's the same thing when you're talking, like I'm here I'm showing up on purpose. I'm engaged. And the tone of my voice is going to reflect the fact that I'm engaged in this conversation. Absolutely. The scenario I always think about when talking about tone of voice is let's say you are calling someone out of the blue to ask them a question about work or extend a job offer and they answer the phone hello, hi, huh? You know, something like that. And then you say, hi, this is Elise <laughs> huh? from All of You Consulting. And they immediately become a different person. They go, oh, hello. It's lovely to, to hear from you today. And it's so fake, so disingenuous. And so you always have to be almost on high alert anytime you're about to interact with anyone, even if you think it's a telemarketer, because you don't know who's on the other end of that phone. Yeah. You know where I see this happening a lot too? especially with younger or junior people is in group meetings at work, whether it's internal or especially with clients where maybe you don't have that big of a role in the presentation. And so a lot of the presentation goes on and it can be pretty boring, quite frankly, I've been there, but then your time comes and you have been sitting there sort of trying not to fall asleep in the meeting. And then you have to jump in and yeah. So on this slide, you can see that we're talking about, and and it just comes off that way. And I've been guilty of that too. And I got that correction once very early in my career. And I was like, okay, I got to pay attention to that. But you want to come in with that same command. Definitely. Yeah. This is really back to that reputation of you're crafting it over time. You're not aware that you're doing it. And you really, you can't slip up that often at least because it does shape how people think of you. Yeah. So the last thing I want to talk about when it comes to this, because I could ask you these questions all day, I really enjoy thinking about this stuff, is the taking feedback. And I thought about this a lot with myself. If anybody's listened to many episodes of this, you've probably heard me talk about this. How do you coach people to take feedback? I love a good framework for these types of conversations, what I call critical conversations, where one, it's a conversation, not an ultimatum. It's usually emotionally charged. Uh, It's about a behavior change. So to receive feedback, it's really a four-step framework. The first is to always listen and take notes. I know myself, I black out in emotionally charged conversations. I'll leave a performance review, could not tell you what they said, but I'll say, it did not go well. I cannot remember what they said, but I just it didn't go well. So take notes, one, so that you can remember what was discussed afterwards. And two, because it shows the other person, this is an active listening cue. I care about what you're saying. I'm taking this seriously. I'm writing it down. 
And I recommend literally using a pen and paper, not your computer. You don't want the clickety clackety distraction. And you don't want them to think, are they emailing? Are they Instagramming while I'm giving this? So this ungrateful little (laughs) use a pen and paper. Always then say thank you. This is step two, even if you disagree, even if it was hurtful. If it's hard for you to hear, it's hard for them to give it to you. I guarantee it. Third, once you understand what the feedback is, focus on the future. So put yourself on the same team of, okay, sounds like I'm doing this and I need to be doing that. Would doing XYZ in the future be a helpful shift? And they might say, yes, that would be great. And you can even do blah, blah, blah. This way, it's not you against them. It's us against bad behavior. And that mindset shift is really powerful. If you know, takes the focus from the negative to the positive future. And then step four is to follow up. Anytime someone gives you feedback, it should not be a one-off conversation where you talk about the behavior and then you pretend like it never happened. You want to follow up a week, two weeks later and say, O'Brien, I really appreciated you telling me that my body language was unprofessional. Have you noticed any improvement in our meetings? I've been trying to sit up straight and show active listening signals. What this does is it opens the door for you to continue getting this very valuable feedback. It shows the other person you appreciated and absorbed what they said. It shows that you're making an effort to improve. These are all really positive qualities in a professional. Yeah. And I think as you say that, I just think that that's so important because not only does it show that you're engaged, but it actually helps you make the change. Because if something is a true blind spot, odds are your ingrained behavior are going to continue to drive you towards doing the thing you've always been doing. And asking for that feedback can catch that and can actually help you continue to make improvement on that so that you don't just fall back into the pattern or you don't go halfway, but not really get the full value. Right. It's important to be humble enough to listen to the feedback and not get defensive. Try to absorb it. If you do disagree with it, don't disagree in the moment. Really try to think about how someone might perceive you this way because it doesn't really matter what your intention is. It matters how you're perceived. So having that almost distant perspective of going back home and reflecting and then thinking about, is there some truth to this? And then really trying to change your behavior is really an ultimate sign of maturity and professionalism. Yeah. Yeah. Another great point. I have a whole podcast of of great points here, but (laughs) another great point is you don't have to process it in the moment Mm -hmm. and, and you don't have to have some earth shattering change in the moment. It's it. Most feedback is really most of the change from feedback really comes from sitting with it and digesting it. I find that for myself too. Yeah. It's usually very hard to hear. It's hard for me to get critical feedback. And let me tell you, I do anonymous surveys at the end of every workshop and people are brutally honest in their anonymous online surveys. And sometimes I find myself as I'm reading it, getting defensive. And then it's very helpful to come back to it a day later and think, you know, they kind of have a point there. Yeah. One of the things that I've been focusing on in my own life recently has, and I think I've said this in the podcast before, is anytime that I feel defensive or get angry at some kind of situation, I try 
usually not in the moment, but afterwards, I try to think, what about this is true? Or what about this is is my fault? And, you know, I had this happen yesterday. You know, my wife came at me with some commentary about something I was doing that I didn't like and didn't agree with. And I got defensive and I went away and I said, okay, I don't agree with her. I don't like that she said that, but like, what about this is true that I need to hear? And there were a couple of things where I had, I had rushed into doing this program that I was doing and I hadn't really done the research. And I was like, okay, that's true. Like that, that is true. Whether I'm right or wrong, I didn't really do the research. And so I can go back now and I can do that research and I can validate is what I'm doing the right thing for me to be doing, or should I maybe cut this right away, you know, cut my losses and, and find something else to do. And you know, it's hard to do that because you want to just, I mean, when you're defensive, you just want to be defensive and you want to be like, no, 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 I'm right. But to really sit, it, it's really hard, but to really sit and say, okay, what do I need to learn here? I have found personally that every time I do it, there's something there. There really is something there every time. I need to use that. That is such a great way of positioning it of there has to be some truth here. Let me pull out what could be true about this. And I can imagine that every time you will find something that there is truth to what they're saying. Yeah. Well, and to your point, like it's the perception is reality to some extent. Like if somebody thinks that you are this way, then to that person, you are coming off as that way. Even if you're not in the rest of rest of the world. I did a 360 a number a couple of years ago now and I got very positive reviews from all but one of the people that was on there. <laughs> uh -huh. And that one person, that feedback just cut me and I was like, how can this person, how can I get this feedback from all these people and have this one person think so terribly of me? And I said, okay, it would be easy to be like, oh, well that's just the one person and so I'm not going to address that. But I thought like if I'm coming off that way to somebody, then there's something about it that has to change. It was a great just realization to say, okay, what can I do in my interactions with everybody that can help me not come off this way to this one person? Yes. And, you know, it, it's hard and it really sucks to go through it. But I find every time I sit there and do it, I get something out of it. Completely agree. Two more just sort of quick, curious questions for you, and then we'll, we'll wrap up here. Curious what you believe about people or business that might be contrary to what is the, the mainstream or sort of normal perspective out there. Do you have any perspectives either, either on the work you do or not that you find people, it either surprises people or is maybe contrary to what people think? Hmm. Gosh, what I say might might be polarizing. But I really think that you are an employee of a company. If you do work for a company, they are paying you to do a job. And this notion of always bring your whole self to work, I think is ludicrous. If you are having a horrible day because of who knows what happened in your personal life, no, you cannot come to work and be in a horrible mood and not want to work and not treat people well. You're getting paid to do a job and you're expected to do that job. It's quite simple. And I think a lot of young professionals in particular feel this entitlement of, you know, I need some today off because I'm just in a horrible mood. You know what? We are all in horrible moods sometimes and you're getting paid to do a job. 
kind of suck it up and do it. In most scenarios, of course, there's those outliers. But I see that trend putting more and more of this entitlement of, well, I can bring my whole self to work and I'm not having a good day or I have a headache. And I just want to say, no, not not the company's problem. Kind of get over it, move on, get the work done, be a professional. And maybe this is because so many of my clients are in professional services where you can't bring your whole self to your client meeting sometimes, for better or for worse. And you just have to realize that they're not your friends. They're your colleagues or your boss and they're paying you and you get the benefit of being able to support yourself, buy food, pay your rent. And there, there is a price you pay for that. Yeah. I think you want to bring your best self yes, or at least the best self that you can offer at that time. Yes. And if you can't, that's where, you know, take a mental health day and that's fine. But to your point, there are outliers and, mm-hmm. and you do have to take care of your mental health. But yes. yeah. I totally agree with you. Last question. This is one I ask to a lot of people. And this, this is an interesting one coming off of that last answer, especially. What in your mind is the purpose of business? I'll answer that question as an entrepreneur and someone who loves the idea of being able to start businesses. I think the purpose of business is from an entrepreneur's perspective to be able to come up with creative ideas, execute on them, and add value to someone. And it's this unbelievable gift to be able to do what you're passionate about and earn money for it. That's what separates it from a hobby or a passion project. That is, gosh, the coolest thing to me about business is that you can do something you're really excited about and be able to support yourself executing on that idea. I love it. Elise, this has been a fantastic conversation. There is a ton in here for people and I'm excited to listen. And if your parents have, for some reason, decided to listen to the end of this, would love to buy you a cup of coffee. And you should be very proud of how the lessons that you taught her have paid off. Elise, thank you so much for coming on and and sharing your wisdom with everybody. Before we go, where can everybody find you if they want to do this work or bring this work into their companies? Yeah, elevuconsulting.com, E-L-E-V-I-E-W, Elevue Consulting is our website. We have our portfolio of professional development workshops. And then I'm very active on LinkedIn. I teach several of LinkedIn Learning's courses on networking and career acceleration. So you can always find me on LinkedIn. Awesome. Thank you. And thank you for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Hey folks, one last thing before you go. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Thanks for coming. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.